Welcome to the Lab Rats Podcast. You are now entering the maze. All right, so this is a big episode for us. Aaron and I posted on Instagram uh, that we had the opportunity to sit down with Rob Wolf. We've been a big fan of his for years. We've we've read his books, kind of followed all of his work, and it really was an honor to be able to just sit down and talk with him. Uh, we cover a lot of things here, but for those of you who don't know uh, Rob Wolf, Aaron, why don't you kind of give us a, a rundown of his his history? Yeah, so Rob Wolf is a, a former research biochemist and two-time New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. He also recently co-authored a book with Diana Rogers called The Sacred Cow, which explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. Uh, Rob has really transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world through his books, uh, seminars, and his podcast that he has. He, uh, he's really known for his direct approach and his ability to distill and synthesize information to make complicated topics easy to understand for the average person. Uh, also interesting tidbits about him is that Rob actually co-founded the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. He also holds a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he is a for- former California State Powerlifting Champion. And he's actually created this pretty cool online community I recommend going to check out called The Healthy Rebellion. It's, I don't know if it's really a social media platform, but it's just a community of like-minded, healthy people, open dialogue, a really cool community that I've been part of for a couple months. And it's worth noting that uh, Rob is also the co-founder of Element, which uh, hopefully many of you were able to take advantage of the sample pack that we've been promoting. He's a co-founder of that company. So the first part of this conversation kind of focuses on on element, and then we get into the ethical, environmental, and nutritional uh, implications of meat. Um, it's something that we've been wanting to talk about for a long time. His book was really impactful in us understanding uh, what he was talking about, so I recommend going to pick that up after listening to this. Uh, he's super smart, super insightful. It really was an honor to uh, to talk with him. A little warning before we get started, there are some... Uh, some expletives in this episode. So if you're used to listening to our podcast in front of kids, maybe just uh, use headphones for this one. But it was a really exciting and fascinating conversation that we were uh, blessed to be a part of. We are also doing a giveaway associated with this episode. So Aaron, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so we're going to be giving away a ton of element on Instagram starting on Tuesday. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it came out, And we're giving away over 60 days worth of supply here, two months of free electrolyte drink. I think we're giving away like 72 packets. And with that, we're also giving away the book Sacred Cow. Um, We talk a lot about this in the episode. And I think whoever gets this is going to really, really enjoy this book and, and enjoy the element packets. So we will announce on Tuesday, February 9th. Um, that giveaway and we'll have the details on Instagram. So follow us there if you want to enter into that. Enjoy the episode. So uh, Aaron and I are uh, a recent element converts. Awesome. Yeah. um, Y'all sent us some a couple months ago and we've been hooked ever since. I'm actually drinking some right now. This is like a half citrus, half orange. 
The cocaine has a tendency to do that. That's part of why the <laughs> the, uh, the free samples on the front end are the higher dose, and then we titrate it down later to right. keep people coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's awesome. Uh, we actually did like a whole episode on sports drinks, and there's really no drink like element. We I, we we both noticed a boost in our performance after drinking it. We do CrossFit style workouts. You can mm-hmm. see from my my shirt. Um, and we've, we've just had a noticeable boost, uh, during our workouts. Uh, so what, like, what, what led to you creating this? I'm, I'm kind of surprised it wasn't invented earlier. Uh, here's a dirty secret. It was, um, uh, we have a good, good friend that went to the, um, the Gatorade, like hall of fame, like where, where Gatorade was developed, like, uh, uh, university of Florida and all that stuff. And, there's still like one of the original packages of Gatorade there. And in the beginning, it had about a gram of sodium in it. And then mm-hmm. over the course of time, um, sodium phobia and this notion that like you need a ton of sugar with this stuff. And there are appropriate points to put some glucose or something in it. But I, I think that like presenting it in a one size fits all fashion is kind of ham handed, not not very you know helpful. But it's been done before, but the irony is there's a, 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 I'm going to end up jinxing myself on this, but, um, people are so, people are so ignorant around renal physiology and electrolyte needs. And mm-hmm. people are so scared of sodium and saturated fat and all this other stuff that there's literally been like this force field around element and kind of the formulation because People look at it and they're like, oh, those guys are doing pretty well. We'll do our version and we'll be smarter with it. And their their formulations are are knuckleheaded when you really look right. at the the legit um physio- physiological demands of of uh, hydration and and whatnot. And man, it the I, I feel like an old man who is losing his mind, and I feel like I've told this story before, and I did just turn 49, so I may in fact be losing my mind, and I have to, told this story a little bit before, but I've been eating kind of a lower-carb, ketogenic-type diet for right. 22, going on 23 years now. Feel really good with that generally, and it was only actually doing CrossFit-type stuff or jujitsu that I was like, man, this is hard to fuel in these, these circumstances, you know, and mm-hmm. I would play with like some pre-workout carbs and post-workout carbs. But for me, it would start getting me on this kind of blood sugar roller coaster. So if I ate in a way that cognitively I, I felt really good and I had just rock solid, you know, cognition and blood sugar, um, it wasn't great for that kind of high motor glycolytic type activity, like grappling and, and CrossFit. And I was just kind of like, well, maybe this is just a situation where, you know, the Venn diagrams don't really overlap well. Like I can do some low intensity cardio, I can lift some weights, but you know, I'm just always going to have some kind of performance detriments in this. And then I, I met these guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of Keto Gains, amazing guys, really phenomenal coaches. And they just work with a ton of folks and they use a, a smartly formulated appropriate protein ketogenic diet. And, um, I, I kind of stalked them for a long time and humped their knee and kind of mm-hmm. made, you know, weaseled my way into their, into their community and whatnot. And one day I, I just like, Hey, can I hit you guys up for some advice? You know, see if I can improve my jujitsu and, and whatnot. So I, I sent all my stuff to them and they were like, where's your electrolytes in this? Where's your sodium? Mm. I'm like, Oh, I salt my food. And they were like, that's it. You need to have more electrolytes and you need to salt uh, and you need to add more sodium specifically. 
And I was like, oh no, guys, I'm a biochemist. Like I, I know the, this stuff inside and out, you know, and, and uh, uh, I salt my food and I'm good. And they're like, okay. And like any, any good, you know, um, what does anybody do when they have a good coach? You ignore their advice for at least right, a year, right. you know, because of course you don't listen to it straight out and, and all that. Of course, you don't find somebody with subject matter expertise and like actually like, oh, OK, that's different than what I'm doing. I'll do it. You know, so they they hung in there with me for the better part of a year. And I kept whining and bitching and complaining about kind of suboptimum performance and everything. And they were like, no, man, really like the electrolytes are it. You need more sodium. You need more electrolytes. And so they gave me exacting prescription, do this, this, and this. And it was basically like this much table salt, this much no salt, which is potassium chloride, this much um, magnesium citrate, put some lemon juice in it, uh, uh, stevia to sweeten it, mm -hmm. shoot it down. And uh, honest to God, it was like a light switch was flipped. I was like, oh hmm. my God, I feel great, you know? Yeah. And then I was like, guys, electrolytes are really important. They're like, yeah, that's why we don't fuck up <laughs> our clients because you, yeah. that's what we've been telling you, you know? And this, it, it's funny because the Keto Gains community, even though Ty Tyler and Luis will both admit they started that off with the hopes it would be like a bro brand. They wanted a bunch of dudes lifting weights and power bodybuilding and all this stuff. And what they ended up with was like 85% women who were perimenopausal and like they should be crushed under this like everybody mm -hmm. says that low carb diets destroy your menstrual cycle and your hair will fall out they have no problems with this and it's because they wow. make sure that people get enough protein but really specifically that they get enough sodium and so um it these guys knew that sodium was important but when i became aware of it and uh, although they've got great reach on the internet like i had some pretty good reach. I was like, dude, we need to put something together to tell people about this. And so we put together this thing called keto aid. And again, it was that same formula, like this much table salt, this much, no salt, this much, uh, magnesium citrate. And we had like a half million downloads of this thing, you know, like people just went wow. crazy. Oh my God, it solved all these problems. Like this adrenal fatigue I had just went away. But then we started getting tagged on social media where people were saying, Hey, love the keto aid. But when I was going through TSA, they didn't like my three bags of white powder, you know, and we're like, hmm, All right. okay. That could pose a problem. Yeah. That could pose a problem. And so I was just like, I wonder if there's a, a case to be made for kind of a, a convenience option here, you know, like kind of a stick pack type deal. Um, and so we, we kind of vetted that out and be due to the interest and the success that we had with the, this free offering of people just downloading it and doing it and saying, that they got great results. Um, we decided to go ahead and, and launch element and the way that we formulated the first couple of flavors, if it tanked as an electrolyte, we were going to rebrand it as a margarita base. And so <laughs> we were kind of like, we know we'll win on that. And so we, we think we'll do pretty well here, but that was really the Genesis for the whole thing. And it, it it's, cool in that it is a, a legit pain point for people that when they address it, um, they feel better almost immediately. I mean, it, it, it's kind of stunning. And this is, this is maybe worthwhile. I know you guys are pretty deep into CrossFit and have a lot of CrossFit-related folks that follow you. I want to say it was 2003 that I was in Santa Cruz and working out with, with Greg Glassman. And we were talking about different things that, you know, um, not in blatant sight performance tweaks that, that you could do. And he's like sodium. He's like, Robbie, when people eat this, this low glycemic load, like 
keto zone type diet, which the, 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 the high fat zone diet is just a little bit off of keto ratios. And when you consider the physical activity level of most people doing CrossFit, like I, I bet they're in ketosis most of the time eating a, a zone diet. But mm -hmm. he was like, if people don't get five to seven grams of sodium a day, they tank. Like they get, they go from seated to standing and they get dizzy, their, their workouts suck. And, um, and he was just emphatic that you needed way more sodium to be able to do this high motor activity, particularly if you were eating kind of a lower glycemic load diet. So, uh, yeah. hats off to Greg, like he, he was prescient on a lot of things and he had, he had the right of this, um, sodium thing. 17 years ago, more than 17 yeah. years ago. This was old hat to him by this point. Yeah. So it's like yeah. a good gauge for people to know, I guess, like, like where to start with their sodium intake. Like me and Andy, for example, we, we eat like a primarily whole foods diet. Mm -hmm. I know Andy's like lower carb, but we, we don't get much sodium in our diet naturally yeah. because we avoid highly processed foods, highly palatable yep. foods. We work out. So like what for people and most of our listeners are also in kind of the same boat here. What is yep. like a good uh, a way to start, like, how do you know how much sodium to introduce into your diet? Really good question. And unless somebody is hypertensive, so if they have high blood pressure, not really the place to start introducing large amounts of sodium. Although that said, the, um, the main cause of hypertension is actually elevated insulin levels, chronically elevated insulin. And if we can get them on a lower glycemic load diet, that will fix the blood pressure and then they will right, need more sodium. Right. So it, it, you know, ends up being a little bit circular there, but five grams per day is a really good starting place. Okay. And, uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that folks should be doing five elements a day. If they <laughs> want to do that, that's great. My, my kid's you know, college fund will, will thank them for that. But <laughs> ideally they're, they're, they're vigorously salting their food. Um, things like olives, salami, um, anchovies, sardines are all very high in sodium. Like 10 olives has a gram of sodium with it. So it's a really cool, sneaky way to, to get some sodium in. And ideally we're getting the bulk of the sodium from dietary sources. And then literally something like element should just kind of plug the gaps in that. But, but five grams is a good starting place. Uh, Tyler and Luis, again, like they have women though, that are real high motor and work out in some kind of hot environments. They're, they're 10 and 12 grams a day. Like it's wow. kind of jaw dropping. And if you have a larger athlete, um, hot, humid environment, and I've just been learning more recently, like, um, you know, winter sports. So, Air that is below freezing and has been below freezing for weeks at a time, you know, like alpine environment, it's so dry that that is also a major vector for this, this kind of dehydration process and can dramatically increase uh, hydration needs. And what's dodgy about that is when you're cold, your, your thirst mechanisms get really uh, suppressed. So at least in a hot environment, like your normal thirst mechanisms are at least kind of firing on, on all cylinders in a cold environment. Interestingly, you have to, something that is flavored is really handy. That's where like chicken bouillon or something like that is really good because that additional flavor will encourage you to consume more. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was wondering, I was going to ask you that because I work out, I'm up in Indiana. It's very cold here right now. And I work out out in my garage where it's like, 20 degrees, 30 degrees, it's not heated. So yep. um, I was wondering, like, are, are there certain like, periods of the year where you might need to supplement more in the winter versus summer? Um, like when you sweat more, do you need to increase your sodium? But I mean, year round, it's important to 
to keep that supplemented, keep that at, a, at an adequate level. Yeah. And, you know, like, uh, we've been lucky the past two years. We didn't do it this year because of COVID, but we've been able to go to a jujitsu retreat in Costa Rica, usually in February. But it's still like 95 to 98 degrees there, 98 percent humidity. And it's in a, uh, a steel building and they, they set wow. it up. It's cool. It's up on this hillside. So you get some cross ventilation and there's always a breeze there but dude it's hot you know yeah, and then you've got a gi on so you imagine like um two two or three hour sessions per day 95 degrees 98 percent humidity wearing a gi i always end up with like the 280 pound dude that just like <laughs> smashes me and um I'll, I'll do like three or four elements during that two hour session. Oh, wow. And okay. if I don't do that, I will cramp during that time, which mm. by the time you get to cramping, you are so far past like optimum hydration. It, it, it's kind of crazy. Like it, it, once you hit the, the cramping phase, like you, you have been in suboptimal um, sodium potassium ratio for a long time. Right. But that's a scenario where I may end up doing a bunch of that stuff. And even <laughs> I'm like the co-founder of the company, but I end up just like throwing extra salt in my water in <laughs> under those environments. I have a 64 ounce thing where I'll throw extra salt and an element, you know, a couple of elements in there just right. to really top the thing off. Yeah. 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 That's good. Well, we love it. We've been pitching the, uh, the, the free packet, the sample pack this month and nice. uh, yeah, it's awesome stuff. So we could talk about element all day. Um, and we can take this conversation wherever you want, but I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to hear about, uh, kind of shifting to the, the sacred cow piece, hearing about the case for better meat. You know, you and Diana wrote a really thorough and incredible book um, called Sacred Cow and, and did a documentary on the nutritional, environmental, and, and the ethical impact of well-raised meat. Yep. We've talked about the nutritional case for meat a few times on the podcast. Uh, we actually did a month of carnivore and, and did this blood work and all this stuff. So we've, we've talked about that a bit. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about that we, we've been wanting to talk about is the environmental case and ethical mm -hmm. case for better meat. So basically the, the two most controversial aspects of meat. Yep. Um, but we both watched uh, and read Sacred Cow, learned a lot. And I wish we could deliver all of the knowledge in there right here, but there's just so much to it. So so we'll tackle uh, what we can. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's no secret that like meat has been has been portrayed as this villain in terms of like contribution to climate change. I remember like years ago before I was even like interested in health and fitness, I, I watched the documentary Cowspiracy. Mm -hmm. Since then, more have come out like the game changers, what the health. But one like stat in there that stuck out to me, and I remember to this day, that seems pretty um, like a, a devastating argument against me was the greenhouse gases. And a common number is is like this 50 percent that that. Uh, cattle, that livestock contributes to like 50% of the worldwide greenhouse gases. And um, it, it, there seems to be some contradicting evidence there. I was looking just at the EPA. They have reports from, I believe, 2018 for the U.S. specifically. And those just show ag as a whole to be mm -hmm. around 10% with livestock specifically being at like 3.9 percent yeah so like i'm just and wondering god bless you for doing a little research on that <laughs> just really quickly like seriously thank you for doing research <laughs> on that yeah um but like yeah how's this data been like so misconstrued it's it's wild to see this number at 50 percent, whereas like the epa reports 3.9 percent. where where do these numbers get so misconstrued uh, you know it's funny um 
I was talking to my friend, good friend, Dave Dooley. He's a very successful businessman. Um, he made the point that we live in a post-fact world. Like, you know, particularly after this left last election cycle, and regardless mm -hmm. of which side of the uh, political aisle you happen to be on, um, there's absolute bullshit that abounds. And, and it, it, it just like... The, the more ridiculous, the better. Um, there was a, mm -hmm. an interesting uh, a documentary called The, the Social Dilemma. Yeah. And, it, yeah. It, was, and it, it, yeah. it talks about a lot, a lot about the challenges around social media. But it really, I think maybe the most important takeaway is that early in the development of, of Facebook in particular, they had to figure out how to monetize this thing. And what they discovered was that when people are pissed off, when they see something that angers them, it causes far more engagement than being happier. You know, if you see something cool, they go, oh, that's great. You know, and maybe you share it around. But if you see something that rankles you, disgusts you, upsets you, then it's guaranteed you will rail against it and share it and, you know, yeah. shout it down. And, um, and what this ended up doing is there's a lot of different things that go on here. Um, we we have entered a phase where people have come to a point where they expect information to be free. So where once um, good news sources like, let's just say that, that cable news sources once were credible, and let's say places like the New York Times and you know whatever were credible at one time, they had journalistic integrity, they're dying. And they're mm -hmm. dying because nobody's willing to pay mm -hmm. for journalism. Nobody's willing to pay for the the hard work that goes into, um, uh, you know, independent research and whatnot. But man, they can make a lot of money off of sensationalistic headlines. Oh, yeah. And so there's a bunch of different things that have kind of gone together into this. And we're now in a spot where you can make a really ridiculous claim the people who want to believe that claim will perpetuate that claim. So it's interesting. Like there was, there was this claim that upwards of 70% of greenhouse gas emissions are attributable to, to grazing yeah. animals. Yeah. And then that was shot down by the scientific community and it was retracted and redacted and modified and everything. But it's kind of like peeing in a pool. It was out there and you never get it back out. And so now, even though, the World Health Organization and the, the entities that initially were kind of associated with putting out really bad information, the army of kind of vegan-centric people have this idea in their head and they perpetuate it and it, it goes within their echo chamber. And I'm sure that there's, there's stuff within kind of the carnivore CrossFit meat-centric crowd that mm -hmm. we have our own kind of echo chambery type stuff going on. But that's really what's going on. And up until maybe a year ago, that was that was bad, but it it there was at least some hope for getting some some forward progress on it. But now that animal husbandry has been tied directly into climate change and COVID, somehow now animal husbandry also causes COVID, which is caused right. by the climate change that is caused by COVID, even though it, it seems in the beginning, I didn't think that uh, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus was lab origin. Now it looks like it, it will, virtually certainly was lab origin. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and so it's not one of these wet market deals or anything like that. But it, it um, to even suggest that animal husbandry might be beneficial for climate change in various ways, 
you are now on the bad side of the censorship engine. You are now right. perpetuating what is in the eyes of Facebook and Google and, and YouTube misinformation because it doesn't jive with what the World Health Organization, you, you know, World Economic Forum says. And so even though science should always have a sign on it, good until further notice, and there really is very little, few things that is like settled science, you know, it's like a Newtonian physics. If I know how much a baseball weighs and I know how fast it's going, what angle it goes, then I can predict with pinpoint accuracy where it's going to land. There's not much else that we, we, we get like, you, right. complete pinpoint accuracy with shit like that. You know, there's mm -hmm. very few systems that are that simple. And so this is why we're always updating things and, and the incredible danger of these uh, information monopolies saying that the only acceptable science is, is what is within the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy changed. So, so they're even creating a scenario in which if a big entity changes its position, like very early in COVID, I don't want to drag this into that too much, but very early in COVID, Dr. Fauci said that masks don't work. And then, the, mm -hmm. you know, and then he said they do work. And by their own algorithms, then where does that put Dr. Fauci? Like he has had two contra completely contradictory statements. And, and um, right. this is where I think it's just really dangerous for these folks to get in and start curating information. And I know I kind of got a little bit far afield from your initial question, but there's a lot of different things that are going into this misinformation. Um, one is just people, people make shit up. Um, <laughs> Then it gets updated, but then when the misinformation is kind of out out in the wild, uh, the people who want to believe that are going to believe that. And then if it fits a particular kind of socio-political narrative, then it tends to get protected by the information monopolies, and it, it, it's very difficult to walk that back. Right. Well, and and it's it's easier too to just kind of latch on. I mean, from a from a uh, cognitive perspective, almost, it's easier to just kind of latch on to what everyone else is saying, and instead of actually looking at and doing the work behind, okay, what, what does the evidence actually say? Like, it's not as simple as, you know, plants good, meat bad. It's an attractive sentiment thinking that if you eliminate all meat, um, well, that's going to solve our nutritional problem. That's going to solve our environmental problems. That's going to solve, you know, our ethical problems. But like, it's much more complex than that. I think the truth is that a lot of people don't want to do the work to dig into that. It's a lot. I mean, it, it, it's uh, this kind of vegan narrative, and, and you alluded to this, like you will, um, if you eat a vegan diet, so the story goes, you will live forever. You'll never get cancer. You'll never get heart disease. You will be morally superior. You're not killing animals. You're saving the environment. And you're part of a, 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 a society or a group that is, you know, fighting this battle to, uh, you know, turn the tide against evil corporations that are trying to destroy the planet and all this. So, man, it's a beautiful soup to nuts case. You, you feel really good about it. But then when you dig into it, one of your earlier questions, you know, kind of the ethical considerations of this story, the simplistic ethics story is, well, I don't want to have something killed. So it ends up on my dinner plate. So I'm going to eat grains and carrots and you, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, okay. But the deeper story there is that in the process of industrial row crop food system, lots and lots of animals die in that system. 
So your carrots and your broccoli and your kale and your corn and your soybeans are not bloodless. You just aren't eating them directly. Right. And in fact, studies suggest that you're killing more animals in that process than what would be killed from a, a grass and large animal centric model. But people mm -hmm. will dismiss that and say, well, I, my intention is not to kill them. So I'm not, you know, I'm not on the hook for that stuff. And I think that that's actually really ethically bullshit. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like there's, this is this net, if we're going to talk about the whole world and, you know, all these network systems and everything, then what's the total impact of the diet that you're, you're consuming. And it, it's interesting. Forbes had a remarkably scathing piece about like lab grown meat in this, this push for a plant centric model on the part of, you know, the vegans, but they, they basically made this case that this vegan centric model is friendly only to big pharma and like multinational corporations. Like it, it, it's shocking because there's six companies that produce about 95% of the food that we eat. And, wow. and not that that's inherently bad, but there's a lot of interesting kind of moral hazard that ends up popping up in this, this whole story. But ethically, it's kind of like your, your bowl of quinoa is not bloodless. So what do we, you know, so what, that changes the ethical considerations a lot. Then when we start looking at just human nutrition, this was actually one of the really interesting things for Diana and I in putting together the book. It's very, very difficult to feed humans in an effective way, absent animal products that they're not nutrient deficient. And there was a, a, a great piece and it wasn't Eat Lancet. I, I keep blanking on the, um, the name of it, but it was the, this piece that claimed that, uh, you know, there would be all these benefits if you remove animal husbandry out of the, the diet and there would be all these health benefits. And then there was a, a, uh, you know, rebuttal piece that basically said, if you removed animal husbandry entirely out of the U S food system, it would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 2.8%. Nutrient deficiencies would explode. And people would get overall gain much more weight and have much more disease because if you don't eat enough protein, you tend to overeat everything else. Mm -hmm. And so it would actually be net net very bad for health. And this is in a, a largely Western wealthier population that, that this would be a problem. What's really interesting is the, the people who would be really disproportionately negatively impacted from removal of animal products from the diet are poor marginalized populations. Oh, like absolutely. these are the folks that, that are the most likely to suffer nutrient deficiencies and whatnot as it stands. And so it, it was literally just a couple of days ago, a, a study out of Finland looking at vegan families raising children on a vegan diet. And these kids are a disaster. They're multiple nutrient deficiencies, failure to thrive, increased rates of infections, and the, the families were very, um, what's the, there's kind of a joke who, who would tell you that, that, that about themselves first, a vegan or a CrossFitter, you know, oh, some, right. <laughs> some, you know, some, yep. something like that. Well, th these folks are really motivated to work with the researchers because they're very proud of their diet and they believe in it. And, you, you know, there's all this kind of, uh, kind of moral stuff attached to it and everything. So very engaged people and in this wealthy Finnish population, the, you know, access to every supplement and, and knowledge of like food combining and everything. These families are failing their kids on this, this mm -hmm. exclusively vegan diet. What's going to happen when meatless Mondays continue to roll out to public school systems and you have situations like the New York public, public school system, which 
70% of the children in that system are considered low income. 10% are considered homeless. Hmm. And now granted the animal products that are in that system are like terrible as it is, mm -hmm. but oftentimes the only nutrition, the only meals that the kids get at all is through school. And now it's being suggested that they should remove the animal products. And the only things that you have to replace it are sugar and starchy carbs. That's the only, that's the right. only thing left to plug back into this. So it's interesting in 2020, we had, we rightfully had a lot of people very concerned about a host of social justice issues. But again, on this ethics consideration, if it's hard bordering on impossible to adequately feed human children a diet that does not damage them for life, like if you don't have enough B vitamins in your, your childhood development, you end up with brain damage that will mm -hmm. never be fixed. There is no going back from that. And it's an, it's an easy thing to do on a meatless diet. And that isn't even considering zinc deficiencies and omega-3 deficiencies and iron deficiencies. All of these can stunt development in pretty profound ways. Once you are post-development and you want to experiment with this stuff, okay, wh whatever. But, you know, currently it, it, it's really in vogue to put a vegan diet onto children. And there's, there's in the European Union, for the most part, it, it's considered a uh, child endangerment to feed kids a vegan diet because it's understood that the, this is a nutrient deficient diet. So again, this changes the calculus around ethics considerably. Right. And then we haven't even considered the, the potential that well-raised grazing animals might actually be a really powerful tool in sequestering carbon and, and reversing elements of this climate change. And that's still kind of a controversial topic. Like, do they store more than they produce? But here's one thing that we we know it, it, without a doubt. Properly utilized grazing animals can and do reverse des desertified areas. So like mm -hmm. in the film, we we documented a, a guy that's converted a million acres of farmland in the Chihuahuan Desert or a million acres of desert back into grassland using grazing animals. Wow. And there are huge yeah. tracts wow. of land around the world that are converting into desert that have become desert that could be turned back into grasslands. And that we have no other tool to manage that none. And so not only would that increase the amount of food we could produce, it would improve the water retention of those soils, reverse the, the loss of uh, aquifer depletion. It certainly is going to improve carbon capture to some degree. Like it, it's up in the air, whether, you know, some mm -hmm. people think that, that we may be able to, um, completely reverse CO2 levels back down to pre-industrial by, by properly using grazing animals. Other people say that that's a farce, but there is kind of a reality that there is no other tool for reversing, uh, uh the desertification process. And in the current industrial row crop food system, we are losing our topsoil. That is a mm -hmm. non-controversial topic. Yeah, You can't keep doing the system that we're doing indefinitely. We will run out of topsoil and then you cannot grow food. The one tool we have to fight that is properly utilized grazing animals. And so when you plug in the human nutrition piece, the, 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 both the speculative and the known sustainability features of an animal inclusive food system and the fact that a vegan diet is not a bloodless diet. It's just that the animal is not on your plate. It's out in the field and got, got killed and got turned back into fertilizer. It really paints that, that ethical story in a very different light. Like it, it, it's not the soundbite, um, you know, elevator pitch, uh, Instagram meme that everybody gets jazzed about. It's a whole bunch of more context. Can you explain how, how, 
like desert lands go from being desert lands to these flourishing lands through the use of like ruminant animals like cattle? Like what's, what's the process there that's actually helping the soil uh, improve its nutrients and, and growing grass in a desert? Yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. But even in areas that have been desertified for very long periods of time, there are still grass seeds in the area. Like they can last apparently hundreds of years. And you just move these animals through and in the beginning, particularly in what's called brittle environments like uh, California, um, Baja, California, many areas in Mexico, many, many areas in in, um, uh, Africa, they get very intermittent rainfall. Uh, They may get low rainfall overall and or they may have very intermittent rainfall. And these areas were grasslands at one time. And what's interesting is From a grasslands perspective, it's not so important how much rain you get, it's how much you keep. And if an area gets overgrazed, if you just let animals go and do whatever they want to do, they will eat kind of the choice bits of grass or or foliage in an area, move a little bit away. And, And this is where like fencing has ended up being a disaster for this scenario. And then as that grass starts growing back up, the animals come over and eat it again. And this multiple exposure and keeping them in a a relatively small space over a long period of time will end up converting the grasslands into desert. They get overgrazed. The interesting flip side of this is that grasslands that have no grazing animals end up in largely the same situation. They just grow and grow and grow. And then these animals are actually animals and or fire end up being critical features of the reproductive cycle of these grasses. So if there are no ruminants to eat the grasses, to poop out the seeds in the, the nutrient-dense you know, delivery packages that are part of the evolved features of these grasslands, those grasslands die. So too much grazing can destroy glass, grasslands. Too little grazing can destroy grasslands. So there's this kind of middle ground. And what, what's interesting is when you look at, at large herbivorous grazing animals, They historically have moved across grasslands in large herds because they have predator-prey pressure occurring, like they're picked away at from the the margins by predators. So these herds move in mass across a landscape and they eat everything and they poop and pee and break up the soil and then they move on. And they may not come back to that area for months or or even, you know, years before they, they make it back through in their migratory patterns. And what what holistically managed animals, we can't really utilize predators to produce this kind of mob grazing, but you can use portable electric fencing. Mm -hmm. So you open up a new paddock and there's fresh grass, but it's in a a constrained, you know, volume. The animals move in there and they're competing against each other. Game theory describes the way that this stuff works out. And again, they eat everything. You, You close up the paddock behind them so that that can start recovering. They're on that paddock, depending on on the size of the herd, the the amount of rain that an area gets or, or whatnot, you may only have them in that area for a couple of hours. And then you open up another paddock and then they move to the next one or maybe a day or two. But they're not there for weeks or months, which is the way that most people run animals in a, in a particular environment. So this is, again, where it it defies just kind of reductionist logic. We have a story in which overgrazing absolutely can destroy grasslands. So then the the suggestion is, well, we just need to let these things rest and let them rewild. That doesn't work either. 
So then you're kind of like, well, what the hell do you do? Well, you have to take a step back and ask some like ecology and evolutionary biology questions. How did these grasslands evolve and how did they co-evolve with these other animals? And then when you start putting on that lens, you're like, oh, lots of grazing animals and they had predator-prey interaction. We need to move them through this landscape in a specific way with an eye towards, is it a brittle environment like Northern California or is it a very wet environment like uh, West Virginia? You've got different latitude then with what you do with that. But it, it's a, there's an old film. Somebody shot it to me. It's called Sea of Grass. And it tells a story about ranchers moving cattle through Las Vegas. And Las Vegas in the, the mid 1800s was grassland like chest high grassland and it wow. got overgrazed. And, and this mainly came about when they started putting up barbed wire and, and, and fencing things off and animals were not really allowed to range the way that they had in the past. They were in these constrained paddocks, which then led to overgrazing. We reduced the predator population. So there wasn't that tendency for them to, you know, clump together and all that. But yeah. again, um, Probably half of your listeners committed suicide listening to that because it's like so long and drawn out and probably boring for half of them. No, no, this is what we wanted to get into. I, I appreciate this. But it it's a lot to fucking unpack. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you are interested in this stuff, it's like, Jesus Christ, what did that guy just say? Like predator, prey interactions and ecology. Like it's a lot to unpack. Right. That. It's complex. It's really complex. And you need a, a, uh, a fairly stout desire to be interested in it. And now we're in an environment where trying to have these nuanced conversations can get you deplatformed. So we're, mm -hmm. we're in a fascinating time, you know, in trying to unpack all this stuff and, and move the conversation forward, which is why I really, really grateful that you guys, folks like you have me and other people like me on your shows. Hopefully I don't get you deplatformed, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll it, would, it, would, it would be an honor for you to deplatform us. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, every, every week I feel like I, I read an article on like the innovation of lab grown meats. It, you know, it's offered as this environmental friendly world changing alternative to real beef. And look, I love technology. I love innovation. I think it serves an important purpose in our economy, but this is a unique situation where there's so many people latching onto this idea think because there's a lot of profit behind it but yes. it, no it feels like no downsides are ever presented so like based on your research what are some some consequences maybe that are, are going ignored of lab lab grown meat like is is lab grown meat uh, a viable solution it, if you're on a spaceship flying to mars or you're on mars and you have no other options like there it, it, there are some some benefits to something like that but it's really interesting. Um, people present this as, so here's a, again, kind of a complex thing, but most people realize that when they buy their gasoline, there's some amount of ethanol in the gasoline to, to offset. And this is supposed to be environmentally friendly. What's interesting about that though, is when you look at people who raise corn for ethanol, they don't run their tractors on ethanol. They run it on gasoline and, and diesel because it costs more energy to get the ethanol produced than what you get out of it. It's a, it's a boondoggle. It's a complete mm -hmm. lie. It's a, it's a total boondoggle. Like for a system like that to work, you get, need to get more energy out of it than what you put into it. Right. And when you look at these lab grown meat scenarios, you're comparing sunlight, grasslands and grazing animals to sticking nutrients in a vat 
that needs to be air conditioned, heated. It needs antibiotics to keep stuff from growing in it. And this is the thing that makes me absolutely crazy. Where does this lab grown meat magically grow from? So we have meat cultures, but what do the meat culture cells eat? And people are just like, well, I, I, I don't know. They, don't they just right. grow? And it's like, grow on what? Right. So you have to provide a nutrient medium for these things. Where does that nutrient medium come, come from? Industrial row crop food systems yep. that have to get harvested, sprayed, then massively processed, which is all energy intensive. And then this nutrient medium is poured in there to grow the meat. It is so ridiculously inefficient from a thermodynamics and energy perspective. I just, it is stunning. To, it is unethical. There's a fucking lie that it's a sustainability play. Like it is not. Um, if you, if everybody got super excited about nuclear energy and we made fusion power a, a reality, the, the same process is what fuels the sun. And we had so much energy that we literally didn't care what we did then we could run lab-grown meat because the energy just doesn't matter, but you would still need to raise grains and legumes and feed it to this process, and you still can't do that process indefinitely without animal husbandry input because, again, the topsoil is going to erode and disappear. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this kind of weird circular logic thing where it's like, no, this just doesn't work, but the 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 goal of this and it's it's been stated it, folks want to run food as if it was a software platform mm. they want intellectual property that is owned and is defensible and is attractive to venture capital and clearly it is like just hundreds of millions of dollars are flowing into this sector and uh, i think it's going to be like theranos oddly enough like uh, the the gal that claimed that she could do a, a finger prick oh, of, yeah. mm -hmm. of blood and do like all this amazing testing and i was an analytical chemist for long enough when that was spinning up i'm like this is a lie like i wish i had shorted theranos like i, I would have right. been a billionaire off of that but <laughs> i knew it was a lie there was no way possible and i am like you i am a huge fan of technology huge fan of innovation but that was a bridge too far it's like, I know the cutting edge of, of uh, analytical chemistry and it's not one drop finger stick accurate. And then I, I had the benefit of being on the board of directors of a medical clinic. And so we took all of our samples and ran them in parallel with the Therano stuff. And there was, it, 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 it was clearly made up, you know, wow. and it, but I, I think that this lab meat story is going to be similar. It, it is going to uh, absolutely consume huge amounts of wealth. And it's also going to divert a ton of resources and attention in an area that is going to fail. And none of that effort or resource is going to go into things like regenerative agriculture and whatnot. And in the process of spinning all this energy into these going to fail processes, they're going to demonize this, this thing that I think is really our, our primary solution. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a spicy meatball, you know, it's, it, it's a lot to unpack, but the, the lab grown meat thing is just the biggest boondoggle. And it, it's funny, like, um, the, the tech scene is arguably some of the smartest people in the world, like used to the smartest people went into medicine and now, it, it, you know, for 15, 20 years, the smartest people have been going into tech. These are people with like 180 IQs. They've taken physics, they've taken thermodynamics. And they don't apply any of that to this topic at all. Uh, it, it's kind of stunning. And it, it'll it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. But I just don't see it being good again because it's kind of misallocating 
resources in the wrong places. And I, I find it incredible that these folks can claim that this is a sustainability play. Like people need to be able to demonstrate, okay, well, what does that mean? But but they they get a free lunch because it's it's um it's assumed everybody will say, well, we know that animals are terrible for the environment. I mean, everybody knows that. And then we just we go from there. So we take a lie, accept it as or we won't even call it a lie, but we'll we'll take a claim that isn't well vetted out accept it as the ultimate truth that is unassailable. And then we start working from there, going in an entirely uh, bogus direction. Hmm. Yeah, I, I read an article actually just this morning that they are also working on, on lab-grown wood. So I don't think, I don't think meat, I think meat is just the beginning here. It's going to, it's going to get crazy the next few years. <laughs> but um, can you explain, in, in your book, there's one graph, Sacred Cow, there's a graph that stood out to me. Um, comparing the, uh, the conventional beef to regenerative mm. beef to uh, things like Beyond Burger. And actually, regenerative raised uh, cattle had a, a much better impact on the environment compared to Beyond Burger. Can you uh, explain with like regenerative agriculture how, how that actually is improving the, uh, the environment over something like Beyond Burger? Yeah, it's, it, that was kind of a cool thing. Um, so Beyond Burger had a what, what's called a life cycle analysis performed, and it's looking at all of the inputs, all of the outputs, uh, the energy, and and so there's this really cool. Um, it's kind of an econ piece, but it, it's uh, it's called the amazing pencil or like the the, the miracle magical pencil, and it's kind of a libertarian uh, uh, thought experiment. But it's basically like what goes into making a pencil and and you've got like the wood and the glue and the paint and the the carbon that goes into the graphite and the graphite has to be mined and the the trees have to be cut all of that it, like if you were going to talk about the carbon footprint of a pencil you need to talk about all of that stuff and it starts getting really tricky so you mine carbon in some way or you mine graphite okay there's the fuel that goes into the mining machinery. There are the employees that do that. There are the lunches they eat. Like it starts like spider wow. webbing. It gets huge. So it, these things have limitations, but it also like the further afield you get, maybe the less direct impact there is. But it, it's another one of these things where our, our world is shockingly, stunningly complex. And, and, uh, it's a, it's a miracle. Anything really works. And, and, um, when you, when you perform a life cycle analysis on something, you do the most comprehensive job you can, but again, they're, they're very expensive. They're about a million dollars for more simple processes and they really go up from there. But this independent outfit called Qantas does life cycle analyses. So it's engineers and physicists and economists that get in and look at as many elements of a business, you know, like what's the life cycle analysis of this Yeti mug. Okay. We got to mine iron and the iron has to get processed into stainless steel. And then we have some plastic and there's different type of plastic here. And then the fittings, like there's a lot of shit that goes into just kind of, you, you know, describing what that is. So they did that for the impossible burger and they had a certain carbon footprint associated with it. Then what was really cool is when, um, uh, white Oak pastures had a life cycle analysis performed on their ground beef. Qantas was the same company that did the life cycle analysis. Mm, so okay. it's a third party independent researcher that, you, you know, um, 
they don't get paid more or less based off of the the outputs. Like they're they're they're, they're pretty credible outfit. And what was found is that, and the, it was kind of crazy that the numbers turned out this way. You need to eat one white oak pastures grass fed burger to offset the carbon footprint of one Impossible Burger. So the you know in total the the regenerative agriculture the regenerative ranching processes of producing the white oak pastures meat which is the way that you know, lots of people do it but not not everybody is has been analyzed in this way um it sequestered more carbon more greenhouse gas equivalents it, it it at a at a number i think it was like 3.1 or something like that that was exactly the opposite of the that amount released by the um the impossible burger. Wow. And then it's also worth mentioning that, uh, you know, people talk about like grass fed meat being elitist and paleo is elitist and all this type of stuff. The impossible burger is three times more expensive than grass fed meat. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it mm-hmm. you know, when you start elitism to me is kind of like, well, how, how expensive is this thing? And, and the impossible burger is sold as a sustainability boon, which it is not. It is sold as supposed to be like super accessible. It is not. It's supposed to be healthier. It is not like it's canola oil and sawdust, basically. Like when you really look at the the ingredients in there, it's horrible stuff. So it it's um, and again, like it's a lot to unpack that you know, and it's a very sexy right. thing to um to put this stuff forward. But there there were a number of things that popped up like that life cycle analysis, a couple other things. And there was a good year that I was trolling impossible foods like crazy on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. I, I, would, I I'm yeah. sure there's a voodoo doll of me somewhere at impossible <laughs> foods were like, I wish that bastard would die, you know? Yeah. 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 It's tough. It's a, it's a, it's, it's tricky, especially when like that, you would think that that, that life cycle analysis done by white Oak, Oaks farm, that that, that would be mainstream. Like you could like, like that, that's huge. That's a huge piece of information that is kind of a, a real game changer, but you don't hear about that. Like that was the first time I heard about it when I, when I read it in, in the book. Um, you talk about, I think kind of close the book with like finding common ground among the f- food community. I think it's, it's, it's difficult to do that, especially now more than ever, even even since you published this book, a lot has changed from the the social media perspective. But like, you know, having having said that, what from your perspective, like, can we do what can the average everyday person do to support a nutritionally sufficient, truly sustainable, ethical food system? I, I think first, just really recognize like, where are you in this story? If you're a family of four and you're, you're young and, uh, working your ass off to just make ends meet, like grass fed meat isn't where you should put your money. Um, I would make the case that eating beef of any kind is better than chicken or pork of any kind. Like it is inherently more sustainable, more environmentally friendly than chicken and pork. And, and that's ironic. Um, because Americans have been told for 30 years, eat less beef, eat more chicken. And right. uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's film, uh, Before the Flood, he goes on and on and on about the dangers of climate change and how terrible uh, uh, cattle are. And then he says, eat more chicken. And chicken eat only a grain and soybean-based diet. Whereas like, mm-hmm. even conventional cattle spend 70% of their life on grass. Like it, it is right. just like, and the National Geographic Society collaborated on this thing. Oh, yeah. Just like, oh my God, you know? So I really, one of the big dangers that I see is that the food elitists are, are like, well, it's grass-fed meat or nothing. 
And it's like, okay, that's great for you. But what about this, you know, Hispanic family that, you know, whatever, like they're living at the margins, Mm -hmm. but they want to feed themselves better. They want to feed their kids better, but they've also got a goddamn budget that they need to follow. And so we create these standards that are so pie in the sky and ridiculous that we need to give people the latitude. It's like, hey, you would be better off eating conventional sweet potatoes and meat and fruit than bagels and and then organic bagels and and organic rice and you know so a nutrient dense diet from conventional food sources is way better than not you know you know mm-hmm. from some sort of a, a processed organic food system thing and then from there like if if you're doing pretty good you've you've got your financial you know ducks in a row and all that then I think um supporting local regenerative systems, buying half or whole cow from, from local farmers and trying to encourage that, uh, uh, decentralized food production is a really powerful thing that, that we, we could definitely get behind and could definitely do. But again, it, it's with the caveat, like if you can afford it, like if you can't afford that, getting any type of meat from mm-hmm. Costco, Walmart, whatever is good. And then if you work your way up or you're like, okay, I'm buying the grass fed beef, but it's from Walmart. O- okay, fine. You know, like we're, we can tackle this in, in kind of a graded deal. So I think one of the most dangerous things is that we create these elitist uh, standards that are make good enough. It, it, what's the saying? Uh, uh, perfection being antagonistic good, to good enough, like good enough will get us a long ways down the road here. Yeah. Because if we just keep you and your family out of the sick care system, that's a fucking win. Like that's a huge win, you know, Absolutely. particularly in, in amidst COVID. Like we, we knew from the first weeks that people who were metabolically healthy fared better than not. And we still don't know the exact ins and outs of that, but I can't tell you how many damn articles I've read where it's like, oh, this 50-year-old guy, he died, and other than his hypertension and mildly overweight, he was totally healthy. And it's like, no, he was hypertensive and insulin resistant, and that doesn't mean he's healthy. And it it sucks that he died, but like, Mm -hmm. we've had a year to get people healthier now. Mm -hmm. And I was just reading some stuff this morning that some of these, um, these new variants may not may not like we may end up spinning off new variants at such a rate that we don't get vaccines that stay out ahead of it. And so, uh, COVID could be as as common a feature of our lives going forward as influenza and the common cold was previously. And at some point, people are going to have to realize that they're just going to have to fucking get healthy if they want the biggest backstop against the, the downsides of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, Rob, thank you so much for doing this. Well, uh, we're at the end of the hour here, so we'll, we'll close things out. But um, we really appreciate this. Um, you have just a wealth of knowledge to share with our listeners think kind of the the conclusion overall here is that it's it's just not as simple as you know don't eat meat um eat veggies there's it's such a a complex system so many moving parts and thanks for unpacking some of those here thank you i I really appreciate it and i throwing one thing out to folks like if people have followed my work and and they like it that's great but i would still like i really encourage them to read or watch sacred cow and yeah look at it with Mm -hmm. critical eyes like just because you kind of like me or maybe you you eat a meat-centric diet like go into it with a high school debate mentality where you're going to flip the script and and like try to pick this stuff apart because if nothing else you'll really understand 
this story quite well. And then for folks that are more in that, like, well, I don't know, is eating meat really going to destroy the the environment? And maybe you're you're more bought into that. I would also throw out there that just because you see some messaging that's not coming out of the mainstream, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Doesn't mean that it's right also, but I, I, right. I, it makes me crazy now where people will dismiss something that if it's not from some sort of specific orthodox source that they assume that there, there can be no innovation or no, mm-hmm. you know, alternate truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've created a, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll end on this and then, and then let you go and res- be respectful of your time. You've created this great online community called the healthy rebellion, which I just, I joined like a, a month or two ago. Awesome. Um, it's, I, I love it. It's awesome. It feels like a, a place where people can, can freely talk and kind of work through these ideas. Um, so anybody interested in, in learning more, like Rob, you, you post all kinds of studies and resources out there all the time um, that are super interesting. So definitely encourage anyone uh, to do that. I, I don't, it's not really like, I wouldn't call it like a social media, but it's a community. It's an online. It, it It's like community. a, uh, a poorly run social media platform had a baby with like an old style uh, forum software. <laughs> and, uh, and so it, it's handy for what it is. It's growing and developing when you're used to how slick the user interface is for like a Facebook or something like that. It's a little clunky, but, um, as far as, uh, I, I tell you what, before I launched the healthy rebellion, um, I was growing to hate my work. Like I didn't like it anymore because the, the, uh, the noise to signal ratio was getting just so like crushing and, mm-hmm. um, man, I love it now. And it, it it's, it's not a ton of people, but man, it's plenty for me. Like it, it's a, it's kind of my gulch, 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 you know, it's kind of my little, little stand at, against the, uh, the, the tides that we're, we're facing. Yeah. So thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Yeah. It's awesome. I think, I think people are, I think we're going to have to just start moving in that direction where people kind of, um, like you bring people onto your own platform as opposed to Facebook and Instagram. Cause it's just not, it's not working these days. No, no, but um, yeah, really appreciate your time. This has been awesome. Uh, thanks for everything you're doing for, for helping make the world a healthier place. Uh, keep up the awesome work. Thanks guys. Thank you.